Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with our international reporter, Zofia Zviglinska. How's it going, Zofia? Yeah, it's going well. Great to be on again. I'm recording this from Florida, where we're hosting our Glossy Future of Fashion and Luxury Summit. I'm up in my hotel room, but had to get a quick Week in Review episode in. Um, Zofia, you're calling in from London, as usual. Uh, we've got a lot of fun stuff we're talking about today. So first, we're going to talk about Capri Holdings cutting its earnings forecast and what that means for U.S. luxury spend, which I think we talked about recently on the podcast, Jill and I, but um, worth worth getting into again. Uh, and then we're going to talk two topics related to resale. The first is that eBay um, added streetwear to its authentication programs in addition to watches and sneakers and the other stuff it was already authenticating. And then similarly, um, StockX announced just this morning, Thursday, we're recording this, um, that they're lowering their seller fees across the board. So we'll talk about the implications of both of those things. Um, Let's start with Capri. So on Wednesday, Capri Holdings, which is the owner of Versace and Michael Kors, among others, um, they lowered their forecast for the next quarter, uh, driven primarily by slowing luxury sales in the US. I think they're Revenue from their biggest brand, which is Michael Kors, fell 11% last quarter. Um, And they're forecasting, particularly uh, in the U.S., lower luxury spend. Um, Like I I said earlier, we've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, on this podcast before about how luxury in general is still, you know, booming. It's still a big market. It's not, you know, in decline or anything. But there's definitely a bit of a slowdown happening, particularly in the U.S., Um, what what do you think is the the cause of that, Sophia? I've I've got some theories, but I'm wondering what what your thoughts are on that. I think that you know when it comes to the U.S., there was definitely a kind of mid level affluent customer um, who was previously you know growing and growing. But I think that with the issues currently happening economically globally, I think it's just something that has affected them maybe perhaps more. And discretionary spending is down as a result. Um, I mean, with with Capri specifically, though, I think it's quite interesting how you know you see brands like Coach, for example, who are doing very very well in spite of these things. Um, but Capri, which owns Versace and Michael Kors, like they're not doing quite as well. And I think that majority of their issues lie with Michael Kors, probably more than Versace, um, and how it has you know, adjusted to customers, like shifted, you know, new creative strategies. I just, I'm not sure it's quite there. Yeah. Yeah. And I I do think there's also a little bit of a a corrective happening where luxury sales in the U.S. were really up for the last couple of years. I think I saw that they, uh, luxury sales in general were up 35% between 2019 and 2022. So it might just be that the, the limit of that growth is, is being hit a little bit. Like you said, there's also People love to say the macroeconomic situation. There's there's stuff happening there with inflation and lower discretionary spending. Um, I know a lot of luxury brands tend to feel recession proof or that you know insulated from stuff like that. But I think especially for brands that are a little bit on the the cusp between just a premium fashion brand and true luxury, there there's definitely an effect that they're feeling there from that. Um, it's also interesting to compare to the U.S. to other markets. So. Capri said that their Asia sales were improved uh, compared to the U.S. sales. It wasn't enough to totally make up for the losses in the U.S., but I know a lot of brands are counting on the return of luxury spending in China. Um, have, have you observed anything or heard anything about that in terms of Asia coming back and particularly China for luxury? 
Yeah, I think that there has been some growth there. Some of the brands that I've talked to have said that there's been slow kind of pickup in the market. I think Farfetch have noticed like that there's been an increase in the customers there. But I would say it's a little bit early again to to say that this is going to return in a really big way. Um, there has been a lot of shows kind of focused in other areas of Asia, such as in Japan. I think Chanel was yesterday. Um, and in Korea, I think it was Gucci who showed their shows over there. Mm. So I think there might be a little bit of a spread um, of reliance instead of just purely on the China market to other markets too. I, I don't know if this is something that will be affecting luxury brands, um, but I have heard that there is a possible kind of new wave happening in China as well. Um, and judging by kind of previous issues with lockdowns and things, I think brands could probably be a little bit cautious in reacting to to that and kind of how that will affect, you know, both their retail performance, but also their brand presence over there. Yeah, for sure. And then last thing on this, this is not exactly luxury specific, but I saw a report that the UK is seeing a surprise um, lift in sales at department stores and jewelers, um, which overlaps with luxury, but isn't isn't purely luxury. Um, and I think the the lift is not you know, huge. I think it's maybe up 1% since last quarter uh, across the UK, but it is, I think, the the best improvement they've seen in a while. Um, I don't know, what's the, what's the mood over there in the, uh, in the UK right now in terms of luxury, but also just retail in general? Does it feel like things are picking back up or is there the same kind of, you know, pressures that we're feeling in the US? Yeah, I think that there's always going to be some pressures, but I think in the UK, something that, you know, retailers kind of count on is the summer spend. And I think that, especially with how reactionary people are to the weather over here, as soon as it gets nice, people want to go out and shop. And this has basically been the first month where people can do that. So I think that therefore, you know, those sales in retail are going to pick slightly back up. I think there's also a slight elevation with tourism. Um, which could be affecting that as well. So I think it's it's growing, but again, I'm not sure if this isn't just going to be like a small rise and then another dip when whenever kind of more economic factors start playing in, which they're bound to. Okay, so we've got two other topics to talk about, but they're so related that I think we can kind of just merge them into one big thing. The, the first one is about um, eBay. So they have this authentication program that they've had for a while, um, typically for categories like handbags and watches and sneakers. And then this week they expanded it to streetwear, which I think is interesting because it's a little bit of a harder to define category compared to say watches or something. But basically um, some brands that were not already eligible for the authentication program, like uh, Comme de Garçon or, or Cactus Jack or something um, can now be authenticated, as can stuff from like Nike or Adidas or Jordan that's not sneakers. Sneakers were already part of the authentication program, but now it includes, you know, other stuff from those brands as well. Um, we, you know, we've talked about and, and written a lot about resale in general at Glossy, and I know that authentication is a big, uh, you know, sticking point, particularly in categories like this where there's a, a strong enthusiast um, audience, people who really know the product super well, who are interested in, you know, really limited things or rare things, or, you know, it's not, it's not the same as just someone who wants to buy something from like a, a nice, but kind of just normal brand like Gap or something. If somebody's buying some rare Jordans, they probably know a lot about the product and they're a stickler for making sure that it's real and it is what it says it is. Um, this to me just feels like, you know, I know eBay talks a lot about their authentication program in my discussions with them, particularly for luxury stuff. 
they they bring it up a lot. They emphasize it, especially to that customer. They you know they prominently display it on the site and everything. It's a big part of their value proposition for those categories. Um, what do you think, Sophia? Just a, no specific question, but what are your thoughts on eBay kind of expanding that program and you know what what value that has for them? Yeah, I mean, I think that authentication in general is like there are some ca- categories where I think it makes more sense than others, and I'm. A little bit surprised that streetwear is one of them. Like in terms of authentication, it tends to be quite expensive. Um, like if you're talking about high value items like leather goods or watches or sneakers, even, I think it kind of makes sense. But I'm not sure on the resale market how valuable the products from these kinds of brands will be, mm-hmm. um, unless they're specific kind of um, limited edition collaborations. Um, and I'm wondering if that will kind of pay off long term. Like I know that you know there's been some authentication services offered on some e-commerce sites like Vestiaire, and I think there's been some issues with that. So I'm not sure if like doing that for um, possible kind of streetwear categories is going to be enough of like, I guess enough of a market for it to to pay off in the long term. Um, but I do think it's interesting that they are building out this proposition, um, and I'm wondering if you know dupe culture has meant that even clothing is now getting duped and therefore needs that authentication. Yeah, no, I, I think you're you're totally right. And the, the other thing it makes me think of is um, the margins of resale, I think, are super interesting because uh, mm. I've, I've heard from people in this space that um, part of the reason luxury resale is such a, a big thing is not just that those items, you know, have a strong resale value, but also the margins are much better because resale is expensive, especially if you're authenticating stuff, if you're processing it, it takes a lot of resources. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't know the specifics behind the scenes for eBay, but I'm sure it's, it's costly to take stuff in, examine it, to hire people who know the, you know, have the knowledge to authenticate. Um, so I wonder what that does to their margins. I, I I imagine that the more you spend uh, as the, the platform, as the reseller, the more you spend on each transaction, the more you need to make from each transaction, you know. Um, so I'm sure that they've done the calculations and, and they feel like that's, you know, worth it. But I do know from just from talking to people that uh, resale can be quite costly and, and you know, logistically complicated. Yeah, definitely. And I think the other element to bring up here is that, you know, we're still not at a point, I think, where authentication is purely done through technology. Like a lot of the times authentication Mm -hmm. is still done by people and obviously hiring people is relatively expensive. So I'm wondering if they are kind of hoping that by building this out across categories that at some point they will integrate a technology component, which will make that operation a lot cheaper than possibly what they are doing with it now. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of luxury brands are kind of on board with that tech aspect already. So it's probably not a proposition that will be foreign to them if eBay decide to start trialing it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's been a, a dream for a while. I mean, I remember five years ago, even, you know, going to tech demos where people were showing off cameras that, you know, microscopes that could zoom in on the Louis Vuitton logo on a bag and tell you if it's real or something, you know, in an automated way. There's definitely, I think, a lot of interest in finding more scalable and more cost-effective ways to do that. But for now, it's like, especially for those super high-end products, it's like, I don't know if you would want to trust a machine that is still kind of new 
over you know someone who like a human being who knows the the brand and, and knows the product super well but yeah. um that so that brings up this third topic that I wanted to talk about like I said it's kind of uh, very closely related but just this morning that we're recording this which is Thursday um, StockX announced that they're restructuring their seller tiers um, so the, when you sell through StockX there's there's five tiers of you know basically how big of a seller you are on the platform and they, they restructured those tiers uh, to do two things one I think they lower seller fees in general um, meaning the the fee, that the seller has to pay to StockX, the commission that they take. Um, and then also they made the top tier, the most active seller, a smaller group. And then those people in that top tier um, get more benefits, basically. So they kind of re- they, they restructured the fees that people pay, but also kind of move things around to make the sizes of those tiers a little different. I think it's the lowest tier. So if you sell something on StockX and you do it one time, you're automatically in this, this bottom tier of sellers. Um, the seller fee is 9%, and then at the highest tier, it goes down to 7 um, But the highest tier comes with some minimums. I think you have to do $100,000 worth of sales per year to stay in that top tier. Um, but you also get a bunch of other bonuses like quicker shipping and stuff. So um, it, it's related because I think in addition to authentic- authentication, um, the, the seller fees and the seller experience is something that a lot of resale companies think about and it's part of how they compete with each other. You know, if you if you have your hands on a product with a high resale value, you have a lot of options of where you could sell it. If it's sneakers, you might go with StockX, but I mean, there are also other sneaker, um, you know, resale platforms that you could go through. If it's a handbag, you've got a million options of where you could sell this thing. And I think the sellers tend to just gravitate towards wherever's the easiest or wherever's they'll get the most value for it. There's a lot of ways that you can kind of entice sellers to your platform over another. And so lower seller fees to me feels like an obvious one, but there's there's others as well. Um, anyway, like I said, that's that's very similar, I think, to this eBay news uh, from this week as well. But what do you think of, of just that idea of how resale companies compete for sellers and how they entice people um, and, and same with buyers? Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, there's there's been such a growth in these platforms. Um, and I think that, you know, StockX has kind of moved out of just doing sneakers and into other collectibles and streetwear and things like that. I think that it's just something that makes sense for them to, I guess, kind of tailor their seller amounts um, and also just make it a little bit more competitive like at this point like the people who would be making the most on StockX will have to sell a lot more I'm wondering if that might have some negative like effects because obviously people who tend to kind of buy up multiple like numbers of stock and then resell it like that's not necessarily a good model and a lot of brands have kind of moved away from that so I'm Mm. wondering if you know that might have a bit of an impact on that top tier and what that looks like so I'm interested to see what that's like. But I think obviously lowering seller fees right now is a really important thing because people might be, you know, less keen to to sell items if those seller fees are too high. And I do think that I wouldn't say that StockX is like the first platform I think of when I think of resale. Um, but obviously it is a bit more specialized. So in certain markets it would work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think they've got, uh, you know, they do a lot of different categories, but they're definitely known for sneakers and streetwear. Um, and then recently also collectibles and, and electronics. I, I always think of when the PlayStation 5 came out, it was so hard to find 
like directly from Sony that StockX became like one of the best places to actually guarantee that you could get a PS5. You just have to maybe pay double for it, but you could actually get it. So they do have I like- I remember that. Yeah, I was able to get a PS5 straight from Sony, so I, I could just pay the normal price. Sorry to brag, but um, <laughs> for a while that was like the, the only guaranteed place to get one. I mean, some other resale platforms I'm sure you could find on eBay and stuff too. Um, but you're right that I think a lot of brands um, discourage the type of consumer who just, you know, buys a bunch of copies of something the second it drops and then resells it instantly. There's all sorts of stuff that sneaker brands have pioneered a lot of things like a lottery um, or, you know, various kinds of bot protection uh, to counter resale bots that just like buy something, you know, the nanosecond it becomes available on the site. Um, still, I think even from, from what I've seen and from what I've heard talking to these like power sellers, people who sell a ton of stuff, I don't think mm -hmm. you even need to game the system really that much to reach a pretty high volume of sales. I think you, you know, just because especially if something with a high resale value, if you're trying to hit that StockX $100,000 minimum, um, you could probably do that without resorting to those sort of gamey, you know, bots or you know, other kind of sort of underhanded things that the brands don't mm. like. Um, it, it is possible, but there's definitely a, a community, I think, of people who still do that. Um, any other thoughts on eBay or StockX and just resale in general? I mean, we, we talk about it a lot and we write about it a lot. It's such a big deal in fashion. Um, anything else on, on this before we wrap up? Yeah, I think that, you know, resale's really come into its own this year. And I think that it's no longer a kind of category on the sidelines, like with more brands pioneering like their own channels for resale. Um, these marketplaces are having to make significant kind of changes to, to make their offering more valuable. And I think this is only the start of what we're going to see. I do think there's possibly going to be consolidation. I'm not sure, but um, I think that it's going to be an area where a lot of these marketplaces might end up losing out depending on what the brands offer on their own resale channels um, and how they're able to kind of entice their existing customer base to, to give things back to them uh, and sell things back possibly. Yeah, definitely. And and as the as the resale market evolves and stuff, you know, we'll always be covering it on Glossy. But that's all the time we have this week. Zofia, thank you so much for joining. Um, for those of you listening, don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to this. Um, that helps us out a ton. And don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because we do interviews with industry insiders every Wednesday and we do Week in Review episodes every Friday. So lots of good information there. Don't forget to subscribe. And thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.